Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. <clears throat> AT&T connects an O to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And we are going to bring you part two of a discussion about sci-fi gadgets and reality. And that means I get to welcome back Ariel Kasten, uh, a wonderful friend of mine, a an amazing person, uh, and also my esteemed co-host and the creator of the Large Nerdron Collider podcast. Welcome back, Ariel. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, everybody. Thanks for letting me talk at you again. <laughs> <laughs> now, in the last episode, we started off talking about some various sci-fi gadgets. You were telling us about their role within different science fiction or speculative fiction, I should say, because some of this stuff really falls into fantasy more than sci-fi. But uh, th their role within speculative fiction, what purpose do they serve? And then I was 
the the bad guy with the pen popping all the balloons of possibility saying how how mm-hmm. this was truly fiction as opposed to reality. You crushed my spirit, Jonathan. As as is my want, Ariel. You've known me for <laughs> for like I think about 20 years now. <laughs> and so <laughs> we're coming up on 20 years. I think 2021 will be 20 years since we first met. And so I think uh, I first met and knew each other's names. I think you might have seen me at the Renaissance Festival before you worked there. Uh, yeah. But yeah, I, I have been crushing your dreams for 20 years. So I guess there should be no surprise at this point. Well, I want to I just want to state as it's important for for people to remember that at the end of the last episode, we had decided that Doctor Who has so far been the most accurate science fiction show. <laughs> yes. Yes, despite it's... In their technology. Despite it being all timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly, uh, which I know I reversed that. But hey, I've watched like uh, maybe three full seasons of Doctor Who total. Um, uh, yeah, I, I, I am no expert on it. That's why I brought you on. So we're going to pick up from where we left off and we're going to talk about some more science fiction technologies and what, if any, corollary there are in the real world. And we're going to go back to the Star Treks, I think, for our first one. Yes, we're going to go back to Star Trek, specifically with tricorders. Mm. Uh, And this excites me because I know that a lot of Star Trek technology people have tried to make true. We, We talked about it in the previous episode. So... Tricorders are kind of this specialized sci-fi multi-tool that do scanning, analysis, data, recording, all of that. It can tell you the component makeup of a, a being or an item. It can search for life. It can trace nadion particles. It can examine living organisms. It gives you lights and screens and detachable scanners to tell you what everything is doing so that when a crew member is in an alien environment, they can explore it, they can understand it, they can search for life, so on and so forth. This is something that people have been working on for a long time in real life, right, Jonathan? Well, there are definitely lots of components that have their real-world counterparts, right? So, like, the exploration of an alien planet and determining whether or not, for example, it might be safe to breathe in the atmosphere. Well, we do that through something called spectral analysis, which I am sad to say doesn't have anything to do with ghosts. Um, It's not that kind of specter. No, we're talking about spectral Mm -hmm. as in a spectrum. And, you know, you might be aware that you can analyze light and see which bands within the visible spectrum or even beyond the visible spectrum, that light falls, right? You could see, oh, there's a lot of red uh, as opposed to not very much blue. And by analyzing light, we can determine things like the chemical uh, composition of various materials. And so we can use powerful telescopes and we can analyze the light coming from various bodies, including light that's reflected off of bodies. So like a planet, obviously a planet doesn't generate light. If it's generating light, something is really wrong on that planet. Uh, It is reflecting light from a nearby star. But that will tell us, in general, the sort of things we could expect within the atmosphere of that planet. Now, that wouldn't let us go so far as to draw an automatic conclusion that, oh, it's safe, pop your helmet off and walk around because there, <laughs> there could be there could be uh, pathogens, there could be you know, various uh, 
components within either the atmosphere or other things that are on that planet that could be toxic to us. So it's not an automatic, oh, we can go there and have a summer home. But we would have at least some information about what to expect on that planet. So that part is kind of similar. The interesting thing about Star Trek is you often see them using this after they've already landed on the planet. And they're like, oh, mm-hmm. good. We're not going to die immediately, guys. <laughs> it's like, oh, man, <laughs> that's that's a huge relief that we're not all currently dead. Uh, the other elements of the tricorder that I find really interesting are the ones that involve analyzing a person. Uh, let's say that a person has exhibited signs that they are unwell and the Dr. Bones, for example, in the original series would use the tricorder to scan them to find out what the heck is going on. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously we've got a lot of medical tools that are meant to do this. Things like blood pressure cuffs and thermometers. And we have seen that technology advance over time as well to the point that now you can wear something like a smartwatch that uses infrared light to shine light down into your skin, like the skin of your wrist, to reflect off of your blood vessels, and that a sensor inside that same smartwatch can pick up this reflected light and make determinations of stuff like your blood oxygen level. So, again, we're not at anything to the point where you point a little, you know, doohickey. Medical tricorder doohickey. Yeah, exactly, at a person and go, and then figure out, that they got the sniffles, but we do have a lot of technologies that kind of go toward that way. And as you mentioned, there've been a lot of companies that have kind of taken the tricorder model and said, how can we make this more of a reality? Most of those efforts, uh, haven't been spectacularly successful, but it's an ongoing process as companies attempt to create more robust technologies that are able to do some of the things that we see in science fiction, uh, but we can't really replicate it here on earth currently, not in the, not in the way that we see it in the shows. But uh, I would say that this is one that we're starting to see more movement kind of toward. I think we might hit some fundamental physical limitations that don't allow Mm -hmm. us to ever have a, 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 a technology just like the one on Star Trek, but I think we're going to get, closer. The question will be how accurate and reliable are they? Because if they're not accurate or reliable, yeah. then it's just a, well, for, at best it's a distraction and at worst it could cause complications because you might rely on incorrect information. Very true. And as close as we might get to a, a medical scanner, I don't know if our real life tricorders will ever also be able to Release antiseptic spray, provide a shot, mm-hmm. heal a bone. Uh, you now, I will give it to Star Trek. Those were very specific tricorders. They were specifically medical. Right, but. right, right. You might remember the little, um, the little, the little device that was handheld that people would put up to the neck, like bones would put it up against someone's neck, and you would hear a little sound thing. Yeah, exactly. And then they would be injected with something. There have been various companies that have come out with um, with syringes that are in that kind of mode. Uh, in fact, I remember my dad telling me about his experience with one and that it was about five times more painful <laughs> than a standard syringe. So, oh, no. so maybe not the best approach. Um, but yeah, I, I, for things like healing of bones and stuff, 
there are interesting approaches that use things like uh, ultrasonic frequencies to try and help with to promote things like like uh, bone healing. But the last time I looked into it, which granted was a while ago, uh, the research on it was not really conclusive about whether or not it, it mm-hmm. genuinely was helpful, but it was something that various medical professionals were exploring the possibility of using an ultrasonic therapy to help with things like, like uh, healing a broken bone. I know that, I know that some vets will use light therapy as well for healing of wounds with animals, for mm-hmm, instance. Mm-hmm. So, which is similar in my mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we we's all just animals when you get down to it. So yeah, it's it, this one I think is one where the the seeds are there, and maybe we never see an implementation like we do in fiction, but but the the depiction that we see in fiction is not so far removed from reality. Right. It, it doesn't it doesn't feel like that would be truly impossible mm-hmm. the way some of the others do. Yeah. Well, one that feels truly impossible to me. Mm-hmm. And this is stepping away from Star Trek before we step back into it mm-hmm. is the neuralizer. And I suppose by relation, the de-neuralizer from Men in Black. Uh, funny you should say that this doesn't seem realistic, but go ahead. <laughs> Well, now I'm afraid to, Jonathan. Well, tell everybody what these things do within Men in Black. All right. So the neuralizer in Men in Black is a little like pen light, pop-up pen, kind of like it looks like the ones that you get from the dollar store where it's got the 12 cartridges of different colors of ink and you press one down all around. Except that we would all press down like five of them and draw in like eight colors or something. Yes. 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 You take off the the cap on the front of it so that you can write with all of them at once. Anyhow, that is... (laughs) Not at all how this thing works. How this works is it flashes a bright light to erase your memory, and then a new memory can be put in place. And I know that you can affect people's memories. You can keep your memory from being affected by wearing Ray-Bans, probably special Ray-Bans, yeah. I would assume. Yeah, spe- but special in the sense that Ray-Ban probably put a lot of money Paid. into them. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the kind of special. Uh, so, so yeah, so it's a little pen thing that allows you to wipe somebody's memory and put a new memory in its place. And then there's a de-neuralizer that is much more complicated and was very difficult for me to find descriptions of how exactly it worked because within the Men in Black universe, it, there were only a couple of them and they were... Sh- kind of iffy on how they worked in the universe, but it's basically a way to restore that person's original memories. Mm-hmm. And it's very involved. Right. And in, in both cases, uh, the way it works wasn't really important for Men in Black, right? The The important thing in the plot was just, you need to have some way to erase the perception and memory of an event among a population or else the whole premise of Men in Black falls apart, which is the idea that they're aliens have secretly been visiting earth for years and years and years. And there's this, uh, this agency that is top secret that is in charge of dealing with alien human interactions. And part of the whole, uh, system is dependent upon the general population being ignorant of the aliens. So you got to have something to 
mm-hmm. wipe out people's memories or else you're going to be doing some pretty serious cleanup work in like the darkest sense, like eliminating people or removing them from the population so that they can't spill the beans. Um, well, Ariel, here's the scary thing. Uh, Neuralizer is not that, not that, uh, not that preposterous as it turns out. So uh, let me preface this by saying I'm going to be talking about mice, not human beings. And with, okay. with very few exceptions, mice and human beings are not the same thing. And um, uh, so at MIT, the researchers had been working with mice and it, it also just warning in general for people who love animals. This is going to be hard to hear. There's going to be some hard stuff to hear in this one. They took mice and they implanted some fiber optic lines that went through the skull into the mouse brains. So they had a a direct line of fiber optic going into the, the little mouse brains. They then put the mice in what they called the red room, which was a little environment red room (laughs) not not that kind no not the shining but i appreciate your enthusiasm no the mice were told to explore told (laughs) the mice were allowed to explore this red room (laughs) they talking to mice rarely does much good they were allowed to explore this red room and then the floor of this little red room had uh, electrodes in it through which the researchers could apply a mild electric shock to the little tootsies of the mice, which Aww. they, it wasn't, it wasn't enough to be harmful, but it was enough to be unpleasant. In other words, it was enough to hurt, but not cause harm, right? Like getting a shock from something. Um, yeah. At the same time, they would show a blue light through the fiber optic into the little mouse brain. So, they're sh- literally shining light onto the brains of the mice uh, on a specific section of their brains. Then they took the mice, they put them into a different environment, which the mice had no association with uh, as far as shocks go. So in other words, this was this was new. It was not scary to them. It was just unusual and unknown. And the mice were allowed to explore again. Then the MIT researchers showed the blue light through the fiber optic to the mice brains. They did not shock the mice. They just did the blue light, but the blue light had been associated with the shock. So even though the mice are not seeing the blue light, it's it's shining into their brains. It implanted a false memory that they had just been Mm -hmm. shocked and they behaved as if the floor was covered in these electrodes and they huddled in the corner and they hid because they, they uh-huh. to them, in their brains, they remembered getting shocked, even though they had never been shocked. They were then put into a third environment and, again, showed no signs of having this, this like, they, they didn't behave as if it was dangerous again. So the researchers had come up with this, this hypothesis that it is possible to implant memory, false memories into a mouse and that this could also potentially be reversible where you could remove memories. You could remove the ability for a mouse to recall that it had a specific uh, um, uh, outcome from a particular situation and thus it would not behave. It wouldn't learn. 
because it wouldn't have the memory to have built upon that when I'm in this situation, bad things happen. That memory would be erased. So it's not a flashy red thing. It is incredibly invasive and it's for mice. But the science shows how memory is a tricky thing because it's all about the neurons in our brain firing in a specific way. Mm -hmm. And if you can disrupt that or change that, you change memory. That is very interesting. And it's invasive, maybe not as cruel as, you know, clocking somebody upside the head a la Warner Brothers style right. to erase memories. Yes, the whole the, the, <laughs> or, old, the old way of, of delivering amnesia through percussive maintenance. <laughs> yes, yes. Or you, you, the way of convincing somebody something's true by saying it so many times. Yeah, brainwashing. Which I guess that would be kinder, brainwashing. So it's not an unknown thing, just it's interesting that they're able to do it with light, like you said, right. shining light on the brain. Which, which goes back to the men in black stuff, right? It's like using light. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, the men in black thing, it's just the light itself somehow has this ability once you perceive it through your eyeballs to erase your memory. Whereas the MIT researchers were literally associating light with a specific outcome, and that's how they were able to do mm-hmm. it. So it's it's two different things. They're similar enough where you could say maybe the there was some inspiration in that research that went into the way Men in Black did it, or maybe it was just a convenient way to work around an, a plot necessity. So I think that that was a pretty interesting sci-fi gadget to reality comparison, and we've got a lot more. But before we get to that, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Okay, Ariel, I understand we're going to make another trip back over to the Star Treks. Yes, uh, this time with something not as sad as mice, mice brain play games. Well, you say <laughs> that, but you don't know what I'm going to say after you're done. Jonathan, <laughs> my heart can't take it. No, no, All there's, right. okay, no, no, no mouse abuse will happen in this particular section. Which is good because I'm talking about communicators, which are devices that allow you to communicate faster than the speed of sound, I guess faster than the speed of light using subspace transmissions without satellites that can bypass electromagnetic fields. And, and basically it's instantaneous communication across great expanses. Because if you're, let's say on one side of the galaxy and you're getting attacked by Klingons and the rest of your backup fleet is on the other side of the galaxy, you don't want to wait years for them to get your message to come back and save you. I mean, we watched The Martian, the the movie The Martian with Matt Damon, and even between Earth and Mars, which is not as nearly as far as the spaces that we often deal with in Star Trek, it took many minutes for one message to get from Mars to Earth and then many minutes for a message, a response to get back from Earth to Mars. So it could take an hour to have a very short conversation uh, that just doesn't do when the Klingons are attacking you. Yeah, and those pesky Klingons, man, they'll they'll pounce on any any opportunity. You know, also also I'm sure Romulans and Cardassians. Ka- I almost said Kardashians. <laughs> the, the, the Kardashians also will pounce on any opportunity. They've proven that on social media time and again. Um yeah, so you point out like this is this is one of those issues that writers had to deal with when they're talking about the premise of a federation that's capable of doing deep space exploration. I mean, the whole purpose of Star Trek is to explore that that's part of the preamble to every episode. And uh the challenge is how do you deal with two things and we'll we'll touch on the other one later I think. One is how do you get from point A to point B in a reasonable amount of time so that you're dealing with the same characters uh, in the middle of the episode that you had in the beginning? Because otherwise you would have to have generations of characters, right? And the other one being how do you They deal with that occasionally in a a (laughs) storyline. Well, sure. But yeah, that's always the exception, not the rule. And then the, uh, the ability to communicate back to either another ship or home base without any delay. And... Uh, we get to a a fundamental limit of the universe, which is the speed of light, the speed limit for the universe. Nothing goes faster than light. The few times where people thought that maybe they had picked up on something that was faster than the speed of light, it turned out upon further study that they were wrong. So light is the fastest anything can go. And if you are a light year, away from something, that means it's going to take a full year for light to get from that thing to you. So you're literally looking at the thing from a year ago. 
So if we're looking at a planet that's 10 light years away, we're actually looking into that planet's past, right? We're, we're seeing the planet from 10 years ago, which is kind of cool when you think about it. Very wibbly wobbly, yes. It's cool stuff, but it does show that there's this huge challenge in storytelling. And subspace was kind of a, a cheat to get around that because without it, there is no way to have real-time communication between two points that are of significant distance apart from each other. As you were pointing out, Ariel, in The Martian, there was that delay that was depicted within the the story. Uh, In real world, where we were landing things like the, the Curiosity rover on Mars, that all had to be done through automated systems, because there was no way to control the spacecraft in real time, there was a, a at least an eight-minute delay between uh, when something would happen and when we would know about it, which meant that the Curiosity rover was on the surface of Mars for more than 10 minutes before we were sure it had worked. Uh, and it meant that the whole process had to be done through automation. So this is something we can't easily get around. There is no such thing as subspace communication, at least nothing that we have created. And it's very difficult to understand how you would even make it happen. Uh, you know, maybe you argue that you somehow tapped into an extra dimensional channel, but that is, again, kind of a get out of jail free card, because even in the the mathematic models of the universe where we talk about additional dimensions on top of the ones that we can perceive, there's still no way for us to access those dimensions. They are, they work because the math works, right? So mathematically, they seem to be there, but that doesn't mean we can do anything or interact with them in any way that we could perceive or, or take advantage of. So that is kind of a, a a fundamental flaw in these films. And, and it shows an issue we're going to have should we ever get to a point where we can do colonization on other planets or deep space exploration. We're going to have these issues where communication is going to have this massive lag in it. Uh, One other thing that communicators have in Star Trek that we kind of sort of have in real life uh, is the universal translator. Although we don't have a universal translator, we have We have very good algorithms that can do pretty decent translations for different languages here on Earth. Because, spoiler alert, we haven't encountered an extraterrestrial language as of yet. So That we know of. (laughs) That we know of. Fair enough. French sometimes seems to be out of this world. So, (laughs) but no, the, the, I mean, that's where the Coneheads were from, right? From France. Mm -hmm. Uh, The, the... Yeah, but with the translators here, obviously, they work on a totally different principle than, again, the Universal Translator, which was another plot necessity in Star Trek, which is that here we have mapped languages against each other so that we can make an approximate interpretation from one language to another. Uh, Mm -hmm. Direct translations don't always work because of things like idioms and sayings in one language just don't don't translate to another. So you often have to take interpretation into account. But in universal translators, they work on this magical principle that if you just analyze enough of a language on its own, a computer system will will suss out what those sounds mean. And then in real time, translate that into whatever language is spoken by the person who's hearing it. 
to the point where the mouths of the person doing the speaking seem to be speaking perfect English. Uh, that's weird. <laughs> it should look yeah. like it should look like one of those badly dubbed Kung Fu films. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've watched Arrival and that's a linguistics expert trying to decipher a a alien language. And it's not as easy as just listening to a little bit because that's if you just listen to a little bit, I, I'm guessing you assume that they're using human structure and mm-hmm. rules and mm-hmm. things like that. From what I understand, Arrival was actually took a lot of, of real life language deciphering into account in its storytelling. Yeah, no, a lot of linguists had had high praise. A lot of uh, fans of hard science fiction have a lot of high praise for Arrival because it, it seemed to have a much more uh, much more realistic approach to what it would take to interpret an alien uh, presence on Earth as opposed to the Will Smith welcome to Earth uh, punch in the face approach yeah. of Independence Day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you mentioned when you were talking about communicators, get out of jail free cards. And I feel like all throughout fantasy, sci-fi and and comic books, we have that. Uh, Many times it comes in the form of the tools or rather the materials they use to build the science fiction tools. So let's do a little quick fire of some minerals and and. Items such as that that exist in the sci-fi fantasy world and whether we actually have real-life counterparts. Okay. So so let's start with adamantium. Yeah. Which is a Marvel thing. It's virtually indestructible. It's a man-made. It's a steel alloy. It's what Captain America's shield is made out of. So it's just like extra super, 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 super strong steel. It's also the stuff that Wolverine's skeleton is made out of. Yes, or um, coated in. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Coated in. His skeleton is still made out of bone. It was it was coated in adamantium, um, and also, uh, well, at least I think in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I think Captain America's shield might be made out of vibranium. Um, mm, you're right. Not not adamantium because because it disperses sound. But we'll talk about vibranium in a second. Yeah. Yeah. So. I- I can't, but I can't tell you how they made adamantium because it's a government secret. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Well, this kind of, so you, Ariel, also are a fan of H.P. Lovecraft uh, horror type stuff, right? Um, and Lovecraft, yes. Lovecraft put a lot of the onus of his work on the reader because he would say that a, a monster was so uh, reprehensibly uh, horrible and awful that you, the human brain can't, can't process it. And you go crazy looking at it, which is a great way to get around the problem of having to describe what your monster looks like. Mm-hmm. Well, in the same sort of way, saying that the process of making this is so top secret that it's never been shared is a great way to get around the fact that you can't do this. Um, <laughs> yeah. So adamantium is being a steel alloy. That's totally realistic we have alloys i mean steel itself is an alloy and an alloy is a metal and either another metal or sometimes a mineral that are mixed together in order to create a a different version of what you are working with so steel is an alloy of iron and carbon primarily iron by itself very useful stuff but it has limitations uh it gets a little bendy windy 
and it can be a little brittle whittle as well. And <laughs> by putting a little carbon into a little iron and uh, doing a very, uh, very involved process of smelting, you can create a uh, a steel, and that ends up being harder, being able to hold an edge better. Um, being less brittle, at least in certain circumstances, depending on how much carbon is in the iron. And it means that you, you can do other stuff with it. So adamantium, not realistic. Alloys, totally a thing. All right. Well, and I'm actually going to switch up the order we have these in a little bit. Mithril then, which is silver that is triple the strength of steel. Seems to me it'd be another alloy. Is it possible to make silver that strong? No. Um, so Mithril comes from the Tolkien universe, uh, although it's been used in fantasy ever since. Like there's so many different fantasies, stories that if they don't call it Mithril, it's essentially Mithril. I think Dungeons and Dragons I, just lifted it straight. Yeah. But I, I kind of like that because it makes it feel like all of these science fiction and fantasy universes all come from some sort of truth. I know they don't. But yeah, the <laughs> fact that they they all vaguely connect and intertwine is interesting to me. Anyhow, go on. Well, mithril being made of silver. So there are a couple of interesting things about silver that they don't relate back to mithril, but they do make silver very special. One of those things is that silver has antimicrobial properties. Like silver kills microbes. So for that purpose, you will often find things like wound dressings that have nanoparticles of silver worked into the dressing because it it fights off infection. It fights off the possibility of getting uh, an infected wound. Uh, it's not a guarantee, but it definitely helps. So we actually do see that silver has these kind of almost magical properties because, you know, it's, it, it's hard for us to imagine how on a macro scale this works. But when you start looking at a, a nanoscale, and a nanometer is one billionth of a meter, when you're looking at that tiny of a scale, physics operate very differently than they do on our level. And so there are certain things about silver that do make it special. Uh, and, and there are alloys of steel and there are other um, uh, materials that we make that are lighter and stronger than steel, stronger depending upon your definition of strong, uh, like carbon fiber. So I'd argue that carbon fiber, which is an artificial thing that we work with, is kind of similar to mithril, although mithril was was naturally occurring. Uh, it was something that the dwarves would mine in, in the Tolkien universe. And uh, uh, with carbon fiber, you can get something that has uh, that's lighter than steel but much stronger – but as I said, strong depends on your definition because there are different types of material strength. There's tensile strength, which is the resistance to being pulled apart from deforming and breaking from a pulling uh, kind of stress. Then there's a hardness, which is more like if you impact it, how does it hold up against that? Does it hold its shape or does it deform or dent? So there are different ways to think about how strong is something or is it brittle? Is it something that it's hard, but if you strike it, it breaks apart. So when we say that something is stronger, we have to define that further. We can't just say yes or no. It may be, oh, this thing has got amazing tensile strength. Like like there could be some, some carbon uh, uh, fiber stuff or some uh, approach of, of carbon nanotube type stuff 
that you could say, oh, this has got such tensile strength. We could use it to build a space elevator. But then if you said, yeah, but if anything hits it, it'll break right apart because it has terrible strength on that side, on that side. Like it's great tensile strength, but impact is terrible. Then you are back to the drawing board. So um, long story short, mithril, not real, but there are some real world uh, materials that we have that that do fall into that lighter than steel, but stronger than steel category. That makes me feel like Uru metal is not so much of a far fetch either then, because Uru metal is what Thor's hammer Mjolnir was made out of, which is uh, the first moon, stone from the first moon with metallic properties that can store magic and and energy and is resistant to damage and super durable. It feels like everything you just talked about, but if you didn't have to have one or the other. Well, also, uh, I didn't mention that we don't have materials that can store electricity or, or like energy and, and magic. Uh, although but you did me, say silver was kind of magical in it's inner microbial. Oh, oh, you're turning my own words against <laughs> me. Oh, Mew Mew. Oh, Mew Mew came back to haunt me just like when Thor throws it. Okay. So, um, yeah, when I use the word kind of magical, I mean, in the sense that we is difficult for us to understand on a, on a, on a common sense level. Um, so, all the all the ideas of being able to store energy, there's there's at least some it's not storing, but there is some component to that that we can look at in real world effects. So, Ariel, have you ever heard of something called it the piezoelectric or sometimes people say piezoelectric effect? I have, but explain it for everybody who has not. That's fair, Ariel. So. Uh, so piezoelectric is the way I say it, but I have heard piezoelectric as well. It's P-I-E-Z-O. Uh, this is an interesting um, feature that some materials have. Quartz is an example. And it's a material that if you were to uh, apply a mechanical stress to the material, in other words, if you were to squeeze it or, or hit it or whatever, it would cause a voltage difference to... Uh, occur within the material itself. So it could actually emit an electric charge. Likewise, if you subject one of these materials to an electric charge, it will uh, experience a mechanical internal stress. So in other words, it'll vibrate. So if you zap a piece of quartz, it will vibrate as a result. If you strike a piece of quartz, it will generate an electric charge. And this is why watches use use tiny quartz crystals to keep time because it's a very specific uh, reaction. It's always going to be the same. If you apply the exact same electric charge, you're going to get the exact same amount of vibration every single time and vice versa. So it because it's so repeatable and so dependable, that ends up being an important element in timekeeping. So at least there are materials that can convert one form of energy into another. It's not the same as storing it. That's that's a different thing, but it, it, there's at least some component to that. Other than that, uh, I can't think of any way to make Uru realistic. Uh, I mean, there are some materials that are harder than others or else we everything would be might as well be made out of the same stuff <laughs> like, or, or <laughs> anything, but that's just not the case. So there is that, but... Uh, the other thing we have to remember is that at least for natural occurring stuff, the odds of us encountering something that is completely unheard of in science 
are are low uh, in that the universe is pretty much all made out of the same sort of stuff. We might find different concentrations of it depending on the specific uh, uh, you know systems we're looking at, but we're not likely to encounter. Oh, here's this new metal that it's it's a naturally forming metal. It's not like it's an alloy that has all these amazing properties. We're not likely to encounter that. Uh, you mentioned that quartz will vibrate or emit energy, uh, which sounds like vibranium, although vibranium is a metal and quartz is a mineral. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess, are those the same thing? No, they are not. Okay, so I'm not incorrect. Okay, so quartz is a mineral. Vibranium is a metal. Mm-hmm. Vibranium is the most versatile metal in the... Marvel world. Uh, I was about to say the world. Yeah. Uh, it manipulates energy mm-hmm. uh, and vibrations. Mm-hmm. It can, as there are actually multiple kinds of vibranium. So some does absorb sound. Mm-hmm. Some kind of shoots it out like a kinetic energy. Mm-hmm. There's even some is toxic and radioactive and, and can liquefy nearby metals because of the way it affects vibrate. It, it manipulates vibrations and then there's one sentient one that <laughs> i'm not i'm not gonna touch but uh so it sounds like quartz is pretty close to vibranium well i, I wouldn't go that far but <laughs> but um i mean like obviously there are different materials that are uh, that are better at at transmitting vibrations than others so vibration when you think about it i like to think of it as think of think of it that you're in a room with and it's a big room like let's say that you're in a giant conference room at dragon con ariel let's -hmm. say that there are only two other people in that room with you and they're on opposite corners of the room from where you're at you're not really able to interact with them in a physical sense like you can't push them or anything because they're too far away right well if you are a material that has uh its molecular structure in such a way that the molecules can't interact with each other easily then it's very hard for a vibration to pass through it. But let's say that you're in that same conference room and there's about to be a Battlestar Galactica panel. So there's like a Oof. billion people in there. <laughs> well, now, because there's so many people in there, you can't even you can't even move to the left or right without bumping into somebody, which means that if you, Ariel, for some reason, decided to bring the wrath of security down upon you, and you pushed someone next to you as hard as you could, that would spread out through the rest of the room as that person would collide with other people. And, you know, it would dissipate over distance, but it would spread. Same thing with vibrations, right? So if your molecular structure is packed tightly, then vibrations can pass more easily through the material. And this explains why the speed of sound is dependent upon whatever it's traveling through. We usually think of the speed of sound as traveling just through the air, but sound will travel through other stuff as well. And Mm -hmm. depending on how tightly packed those molecules are and how well they can move against each other, that will determine how far the sound can travel and, uh, and how, how well, how cohesive it will remain. So there are those elements, but there's nothing that I know of that is so effective at absorbing vibration and then furthermore, releasing it in some controlled way that it would work the way Vibranium does in the Marvel comics. We should also mention that at least in most versions of the Marvel Universe, the largest uh, concentration of Vibranium is found, of course, in Wakanda. Wakanda forever. Wakanda forever. All right. So 
I can't find any way to make a good segue to this next one. What about unobtainium in the Avatar world, uh, which is a room temperature superconductor for energy? It's toxic and it has a magnetic field. So there are there are things that have magnetic fields. We call them magnets. Um, <laughs> so that's that's realistic. There's stuff that's toxic. So that's realistic. Superconducting at room temperature is where we have the big issue. Because on Earth, if we want to make something a superconductor, we have to cool it way, way, way down. And we're talking about using liquid nitrogen and sometimes liquid helium to get a substance cold enough so it can become a superconductor. And a superconductor is really interesting. I was going to say really cool, but it has to be. Um, It's really interesting (laughs) because... As the name suggests, it conducts electricity. But the super part is that there's no electrical resistance. With most conductors, there is an element of resistance, meaning that the amount of electricity you're putting in at point A is not going to be uh, the same as what you get out at point B because some of that energy is going to be lost along the way as heat. It'll convert into heat, and the, the wire connecting point A to point B will heat up over time. And um, and so you 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 have some efficiency issues. Right. And you work with that doing different things. Like if you have a a bigger uh, cable as opposed to a narrow one, then you reduce the amount of electrical resistance. Um, If you have a shorter one, you reduce the amount of electrical resistance. But with superconductors, you have no electrical resistance. What you get out at point B is what you put in at point A and you don't lose anything in heat which is super interesting and it has incredible uses in technology. The, uh, the large, uh, Hadron Collider, which I like to think of as having stolen the name from us with a large mm-hmm. Nerdron Collider. Nerdron uh, Collider. Yeah. The large Hadron. Not the actual case. Yeah, not the case. No, <laughs> that was totally the other way around. The large Hadron Collider uses superconductors to create these, these very powerful magnetic fields that propel the particle beams that are used in their experiments. So superconductors are a real thing, but room temperature ones are not. You can almost think of this as the flip of fusion. You know, in our last episode, we Mm -hmm. talked about fusion a little bit and how fusion is a very, very hot process. There have been claims about cold fusion, but they haven't really withstood scientific scrutiny over time. Uh, The idea of cold Mm -hmm. fusion being that you're able to, to create a fusion reaction at essentially room temperature. So this is kind of the flip side of that, the superconductor at room temperature. Nothing that we have encountered or created so far has really held up to either of those applications. Uh, If we were able to do one or both of those things, we could have incredible, incredible advancements in technology. And I'm not saying that it's impossible. I'm just saying that so far we haven't made it work. Well, it's such a great discovery of a in, in the sci-fi world of a a material that I guess that's why we're having so many Avatar sequels. Yes, which is a, a matter for a different show. That one being Large yes. Neurodron Collider. Ariel, I know you've got a couple more you want to talk about about kind of getting around in the outer space mm-hmm. places. Uh, but before we do that, let's take another quick break. Working remotely. Where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. 
on the network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit att.com slash hypergig for details. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, so that was a quick break, but not because we are flying it faster than light yeah. through it. Mm. Oh, that was horrible of me. I'm so sorry, but he had to listen to that. All right, so... They, they mostly have to listen to me, so it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> sci-fi vehicles. I guess mm. the first thing we should start with is flying in space in general. Yeah. Star Wars. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to stick with Star Wars. <laughs> sure. <laughs> this is such a big topic. Uh, when you watch Star Wars vehicles, they start, they stop in space, they bank and turn. And we know that in real life, you have to have something to push off of and then something to stop you in space. It's not. Yeah. It's not just like putting on the brakes. You've got, it's when you, you're in a car and you put on brakes, it's that friction that stops you, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so in Star Wars, they've got. All of these special <laughs> ways that that uh, space vehicles travel, so much so that they need to account for when they're traveling in in planet atmospheres. Sure, yes, with things yes. like repulsor lifts that are anti gravity technology that keep them from just Plumbing. smashing to the ground. <laughs> yeah, or destroying the planet as they lift off. And then when they're in space, they use. All kinds of inertial compensators, I suppose, because yeah, yeah, they use yeah. bursts of energy from, this is how they explain it, at least, because they had to explain it. Uh, they basically use thrusters and bursts of energy from different angles of a ship that, depending on where the, where the center of gravity 
of the ship is in relation to where that thruster is will push that ship in a certain area. But because it's space, especially if you like you're going to hyperspace travel or, or super fast travel, it'll like liquefy you. So you have to have all these inertial compensators in your craft for acceleration, deceleration, drive, and equalization to make sure that you don't turn into uh, driver seat paste. Uh that would be great if we could put all of this into actual space travel. So how likely is that? Not at all. Uh, yeah. So this, <laughs> now, let's be fair here, because one, as we mentioned in our last episode, Star Wars is science fiction adjacent. It's not really science fiction because the science part the, the, is not really that important. It's it's a component that is a setting, a, a window dressing for the story. The story itself is a fantasy story more than a science fiction story. Um, and we also have to remember where the inspiration came from for George Lucas when he was making Star Wars, because he wasn't trying to make a hard science fiction story. He was emulating certain things that he loved about cinema. And one of the things he loved were the really exciting uh, dogfight sequences in movies that were set in World War II, where you would have mm-hmm. these. And in fact, there are there are there are side by side comparisons of scenes from older World War II setting movies and say the uh, X-wing uh, attack on the Death Star, where you can see the influences side by side and say like, oh wow, they almost recreated this older World War II movie shot for shot, but they used the Star Wars stuff instead. Uh, It's not quite that level, but it's close. And so because of that, because of the exciting ways that planes can move in the atmosphere, that's how the the vehicles move in Star Wars. So Mm -hmm. it was more to evoke a feeling in the audience that was never meant to be, this is the way that stuff actually works in space, right? So we should be fair about that. Uh, Although the whole parsecs thing is still a huge problem. So... (laughs) <laughs> there, so so keeping that in mind, when you do move to space, because as you say, Ariel, there's no atmosphere there. You can't bank off of things. You can't have these swooping motions. And when you're using thrusters, the center of gravity and pivot points do matter. You can do stuff. You can have vehicles change their orientation in space, but it takes time to do it. Uh, it you don't necessarily even have to use thrusters to do it. You can use what are called flywheels. So if you just think of it as literally a wheel that's mounted onto a rotating motor and the wheel is weighted a little bit and you rotate that wheel, you can create uh, uh, the motion necessary to alter the orientation of a spacecraft within space. They've done this with things like satellites like the Hubble telescope because obviously, otherwise the only option is to load down the satellite was so much fuel that it'll be able to continually operate and then use the fuel to, to do thruster adjustments, right? That's not realistic. So the flywheels do work, but it's not, you're not going to get that smooth and more importantly, fast change of direction and ability to maneuver in space the way we see in Star Wars. That's just, that's just not going to happen. Um, it would be really cool if it could, but uh, yeah, it's, a completely unrealistic depiction of how spacecraft would travel in space. Well, it's also, there's a lot of unrealistic depiction of how fast spacecraft travel in space. Mm -hmm. So let's, and, and each, there are lots of different terms for that as well in science fiction. So let's start with light speed because I feel 
this makes me really sad. We have light speed, hyperspace, and warp speed that we want to talk about. And light speed is the, the, the most realistic. We've almost reached it at points. And the one that uses light speed in science fiction is space balls. Uh. <laughs> well, there's a lot of other things that use light speed, but we, we chose, we chose space balls. Yeah. Cause they, they've gone to plaid, um, space balls. Yeah. So, so faster than light. Um, it's completely unrealistic to ever have faster than light travel as in you, you just have some means of pushing your vehicle faster than light itself can travel. Like you're not talking about any other tricks. You're just talking about somehow speeding up beyond the speed of light. And um, the way you can think about this is that anything that has mass from the millennium Falcon to an electron, anything that has mass cannot travel at the speed of light. Uh, the only reason photons can travel at the speed of light is that they have no actual mass. They have relativistic mass, but that's different and outside the <laughs> the needs for us to have a discussion here. <laughs> but they don't have any real actual mass, so they can they can do this. They in fact they they have to. They have no option. They travel at the speed of light because that's what it is. <laughs> but but anything that has mass cannot. As you get closer to the speed of light, you get heavier is a good way of putting it. You get uh, your, 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 your weight, your mass really increases. And it's kind of like, imagine you're in a hallway and there's a door at the end of the hallway aerial and you're allowed to start walking toward that door. Uh, but I've given you a, a, an, a, a small requirement, which is that each step you take has to be half as long as the last step you took. So let's say you take a normal step. Well, your next step needs to be half that. And your next step has to be half that. And then half that. Because of that halving, you're never going to reach the door at the end of the hallway because you're, you're constantly moving forward, but at incre incrementally smaller uh, distances. Same thing happens when you try and get closer to the speed of light. You can start to approach it, but you're never going to hit it which means you you can't go past it, right? If you're never even going to achieve the speed of light, if you have mass, you cannot possibly go faster. Uh, also, the thing we have to keep in mind, and this is something that science fiction largely does away with in most cases, hard science fiction, not so much, but like casual entertainment, is that as you get faster, time relative to somebody else appears to be passing at a different rate. So... Mm -hmm. If I were staying here on Earth because I'm boring, but you, Ariel, were jumping in your space hot rod to go light speed to some place and then come back. To like me, I do. Like you do. When you come back, to me, it would seem as though time had barely passed at all for you. That that you were you were uh, you know remarkably young, and to you, it would seem as though time had traveled very fast for me, and that I had aged quite a bit. For both of us, in our individual experiences, time would pass exactly the same as it always would. If we were each wearing a watch, the seconds would be ticking away exactly the way they would if we were standing next to each other. It's only through our relative perspectives that we perceive a difference in the passage of time. That would also be an issue if you were to travel faster than light. If you were able to do that, you would technically 
be traveling faster than how things happen. So you'd be traveling back in time. Because imagine that you turn on a flashlight and then you travel in the same direction as where you were pointing the flashlight, but you go faster than light. You would get to your destination before the light could get to you uh, from when you turned it on when you were back on Earth, which means that when you did see the light, you'd be looking into the past of Earth and see the moment where you had done something before you did it, and you start to get in some really difficult causal paradoxes as well. So faster than light travel, physically impossible as far as we understand physics, and would also have to uh, require some really timey-wimey stuff if we were to work it out. That's a lot faster than Back to the Future says with the 88 miles per hour. Yeah. Anyhow, you know, you say that, but Star Wars and Star Trek both kind of, when they travel faster than light, they aren't accounting for just traveling in space. They're either breaking a hole through space, it's hyperspace and hyperdrive, which is just basically creating a fourth dimension and going in one place and coming out another to the point that the actual objects around you, the stars, meteors, things like that, aren't there. There are shadows there, which is great because you don't want to come out in the middle of a meteor. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But but th- so it, to me, it's kind of like a wormhole. They're not they're not saying I'm traveling through space faster than light. They're saying I'm traveling so fast that I'm breaking through space to the other side. Break right onto the other side. Both of these are interesting, right? In Star Trek, it's not that they're breaking from one side of space to the other; it's that they're going into one of those different dimensions, which you talked about. We we the, they theoretically exist, but we can't do anything with them. With them, but in Star Trek, you know, they aren't breaking through like in Star Wars. They're going into subspace through a, covered in a warp bubble and coming back out the other side. Right. So, which is similar, I guess. They're, they're similar. They're similar. So let's let's think about these in turn. So. Hyperspace means generally that you're t- you're opening up some sort of interdimensional portal and passing through it and then coming out of an interdimensional portal on the other side that is uh, located in a different point within space. And you still have to travel in between the two. And there's no guarantee that the the two portals are going to be super close together. So you go into hyperspace, you might be in hyperspace for a while as you travel through this interdimension Uh, or this other dimension, and then you come out of the other interdimensional portal to your destination. Um, Hyperspace has its problems, uh, largely also because of episode eight of Star Wars. It totally messes with the way hyperspace works in Star Wars. Because, uh, spoiler alert if you haven't seen episode eight, but a character named uh, Holdo, she... She she has the ultimate sacrifice by taking a rebellion ship or a, actually a republic ship, I guess, and uh, making it jump into hyperspace right into a star destroyer in order to uh, ram it, essentially do a hyperspace ram. But uh, that kind of ignores the lore of how hyperspace works from previous Star Wars entries where you're going into this extra dimension where you wouldn't really pass through an object physically in our dimension that way. However, if you emerged from hyperspace within one of those things, then uh, that would be bad. You would die, right? Like if you were to emerge in the mm-hmm. middle of a supernova, your ship would be consumed. So either that maneuver shouldn't have worked at all because she would have just jumped through that ship in the other dimension and nothing would have happened. 
Um, or if it did work, why the heck wasn't anyone using just just mass, just ships with a hyperdrive, no one on board, and use those like torpedoes? Like you could literally mm-hmm. just you can plot a course. They they always use a computer to plot the course because without it, there's no guarantee that you wouldn't emerge in the middle of an asteroid belt, for example. So they use computers to to plot their course. Why not just plot your course? Get off the ship. <laughs> you don't have to sacrifice yourself. You can still have that happen. And then that would also mean if you work backward, well, if that's possible, then why not just use that for the original Death Star, for example? Why have this very risky run on the Death Star? So they kind of wrote themselves into a plot hole corner there with that one. Um, with the warp drive, the interesting thing there, Ariel, is that the concept is kind of cool. Think of think of having a map, right? And you know where Atlanta mm-hmm. is, and you know where Los Angeles is. Those are not close together, right? Not at all. It'd be a very long drive from Atlanta to Los Angeles. A couple of days, probably. What if you were able to fold the map so that Los Angeles and Atlanta are right next to each other, and it's a half-hour drive between the two? And it's just because you get to skip all the middle part. Oh, but then I wouldn't see the world's biggest ball of yarn. If you're go, if you're going up to Minnesota so that you can go to Los Angeles, you have got crazy <laughs> route planning skills. Um, yeah. So if you, but if but you get my point. The idea being that instead mm-hmm. of the you know, Star Trek gets around the idea faster than light by saying we're not really traveling faster than light. What we're doing is we're warping space time around the ship. We're using this warp bubble to pass through time and space uh, at a rate that would be faster than light if we were traveling a straight line, but we're not traveling a straight line. We're folding space in on itself so that we're getting, so that there's less distance between point A and point B. And when we say go warp four or warp five or warp six, that's describing the extent to which we are warping space in order for us to do this. Uh, which would lead to one of the dumbest episodes of Star Trek The Next Generation where they would have to come up with a a, a universal warp speed limit because they were ripping space-time <laughs> apart. Um, so that, in theory, is possible. It's It's something that people have actually worked on as a possibility of the idea of warping space-time in order to travel faster. Now, I say in theory... Because in reality, to do it, you would need so much energy that it's the equivalent of, say, the mass of an entire galaxy. So remember that the the relationship between mass and energy is E equals mc squared. Energy equals mass times the speed of light multiplied by itself. That's an enormous number. So if you're looking, yes. even if you're looking at like a sun's mass of energy... That is, an, pun intended, an astronomical number. <laughs> and that means that it is not likely to ever happen because it just requires way too much energy. And then you would have to continue to operate it. That would just be to start it. So to to actually travel anywhere doing that, you would have to overcome, inner, at least based on our understanding right now, you would have to overcome energy requirements that are far beyond anything we can even conceive right now. Like we're, we're still struggling here on earth to meet our own energy demands without destroying the planet's ecosystem through the burning of fossil fuels. We are 
well beyond the ability to create a warp drive based on those energy needs. Well, you're you're right. You're very right. Uh, but there's at least some sci-fi travel that we're not well beyond our capabilities to create, like hovercraft. Okay. Like, okay, you say hovercraft. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, you know, kind of flying cars, which we have some prototypes. They don't exactly work <laughs> like they do in the sci-fi world. But okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it down to the simplest, the little hovercraft skateboard in Back to the Future. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say it this way. Under very restrictive circumstances, we can do something that would look similar to what we see in Back to the Future with hovering skateboards, except that you wouldn't be able to, like, actually use them as a skateboard, which would be kind of a bummer. Aww. Okay, so let's talk about Because you this. just don't have that much magnetic track to push yourself along? Well, not not that, but that your weight would push it down. <laughs> like, you would be too heavy for it to support. So, um, not you specifically, Ariel. I mean, any person. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, that wasn't, a, that wasn't a dig. So, using magnets to hover, that's totally possible. Like, we can, we can do that just with regular permanent magnets. Like, you probably have seen little toys where you've got like a, a pedestal and a stick and you put a little disc magnet down on the stick and it floats mm -hmm. above the pedestal. That's because the magnetic fields uh, are, are they have the, the same magnetic pole facing one another because like, uh, like repulses like. So if you have the North Pole of one magnet pointing toward the North Pole of a second magnet, you can feel them pushing against each other. I'm sure anyone who's played with magnets has experienced this. If you flip one of those around so that the North Pole of one and the South Pole of the other are facing each other, they attract and they'll stick together. So if you did have a magnetic surface, uh, and let's say it's the North Pole of that magnetic surface that's pointing up, whether it's an electromagnet or a permanent magnet or whatever, and you had another set of permanent magnets or electromagnets also with the same pole facing down, you can, in fact, levitate above them. That's how maglev trains work. They either use permanent magnets or they use electromagnets or a combination of the two, and they create this levitation through the those well, the same poles facing one another, essentially. So it does work. Uh, but of course, the ground is not magically all magnetically oriented the same way. So we can't, yeah. we can't have, yeah, <laughs> yeah, boy, uh, we can dream, but you know, you can't have like a, just a, a, a board that hovers over this. One thing that also I wanted to mention though, is that we were talking about superconductors earlier. If you get a superconductive material and you, you really get it super cold and you get magnets set up, uh, one of the interesting things about about getting the temperature of a material that cold, a superconducting material that cold, is that you get what is called like a, a quantum lock, a magnetic lock on that. It locks out um, fields, uh, magnetic fields from the, the substance. But as long as the substance has some imperfections in it, some magnetic fields will get through. This means that if you have, let's let's say that you've got a bed of magnets just in a in a strip. Uh, from one mm -hmm. to the other. And they're all connected to each other because you have North Pole to South Pole to North Pole to South Pole to North Pole to South Pole. So you've got a chain of these magnets. You put the supercooled material over this chain of magnets. It will lock into place 
uh, with its orientation with regard to those magnets. And you could just give it a little tap and it'll just float right over those magnets or right under the magnets. Like it'll just magically seem to to lock into place at whatever distance you've put it. As long as you're within the magnetic field of those magnets, it will stay in that place. If you tilt it a certain way, it will maintain that same tilt as it floats over or under the path of magnets. The first time I ever saw this on YouTube, it blew my mind. I was, I was like, this is trippy. And uh, it is an incredible thing. But again, not something we could do in our day-to-day world, in our real lives. There are other methods, like the flying cars you mentioned, where you can use things like uh, propellers, jet engines, that kind of stuff. But you're not using magnetic levitation. There's also other types of levitation. Mm -hmm. There's acoustic levitation, where you're using sound waves. But again, not something that you could easily do with a vehicle. Uh, So there are ways we can make flying vehicles, and there are ways that we can make cool experiments with hovering materials. But not at the level that we see in science fiction, sadly. I remember even when Back to the Future 2 came out and they actually perpetuated the rumor that there were, in fact, those real skateboards. But Mattel uh, uh, did a, a with they withdrew all of them from the market for fear of lawsuits, but that they really did exist. Mm-hmm. And that was all just a publicity stunt. And um I think I think with that, while we still have other things we could talk about, Ariel, because <laughs> we didn't even touch on teleportation or any of that other stuff. With that, mm-hmm. I think we're going to have to call it quits because this has already been a second epic long episode of tech stuff. And if I go any longer, Tari will kill me. And we don't want that. No, because we need her to continue to edit and produce Large Nerdron Collider, which, yes. again, for you out there who aren't familiar Ariel and I have a new show on iHeartRadio called The Large Nerdron Collider, which is actually version 2.0 of that show. The show existed several years ago where we talk about pop culture news. We do deep dives into topics that are important in the geekosphere, and we also mash up different properties and different concepts within speculative fiction and pop culture to find out what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real. <laughs> I don't know if any of my listeners even recognize that reference. <laughs> if, if, if you're of the MTV generation and you understood what I was just referring to, give me a tweet, text stuff HSW. I'm curious to hear or LNC underscore podcast. That's the other Twitter feed. And, um, and I think you'll really enjoy those. The one of the nice things about the LNC episodes is that Ariel gets to talk a lot more than on tech stuff. I mean, I could talk more, but you're the expert on these things. So yeah, well, I, experts, a, a, experts, a, a weighty word, but I'll, I'll take it. You're less ignorant on some of how these things actually work. So fair enough. I'm happy to let you talk and learn some things in the process. And it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for joining us. And and guys, make sure you go and check out the Large Nerdron Collider. We've got some great episodes already in the can. They are live right now. You can use whatever podcatching app you like to subscribe to it. And uh, you'll be able to hear our thoughts about you know, important stuff that's going on in the worlds of, of geek culture and pop culture and also our, our flights of fancy, uh, which are a lot of fun for us to do. There's been some very creative 
uh, mashups already. <laughs> I'm so happy about them. <laughs> yeah, they're they're pretty entertaining, if I do say so myself. And on that note, we're going to wrap this up. If you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, whether it's a topic about a company, a specific technology, a trend in tech, anything like that, then let me know. Reach out on Twitter. The handle is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeartRadio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.